Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 194 for April 30th, 2009. Listener feedback number 65. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Picture yourself on a phone call sharing and explaining something visual with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, episode 194, the show where we talk about all your security concerns. Uh, we haven't yet done Actually, locks. we'll give you concer- security concerns <laughs> yeah, if right. you don't have any already. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's it. And if you don't have them, we'll provide them for yeah, you. That's right. That's Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the creator of Spinrite, the world's best hard, hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, also a security guru. Creative Shields Up, the discoverer of spyware, and our host. Hello, Steve. Yo, Leo. Great to be with you this week. Nice again, to see we're you approaching again. the end of our fourth year. Whoa. I'm excited. Whoa. That's going to be very cool. We're, That's um, hard to believe. Yeah, I, oh, I know. It's like four years. Wow. Unbelievable. Amazing. Well, it's been fun, and we never run out of topics, unfortunately. In fact, you couldn't pick it. Unfortunately? (laughs) Well, I guess fortunately. For security reasons. And unfortunately. But you couldn't really pick a better subject uh, than security right now. A fertile medium. Yes, we have a fertile topic, certainly. And uh, our listeners who've been anxious for the How SSL Protocol Works in Detail episode will, given that nothing really phenomenal and important happens during this next intervening week, that's our topic for next week. Today, we've got a Q&A. Excellent. Your questions, Steve's answers. Before we do that, though, any uh, any news to report? Any updates on anything? Yeah, it's been relatively quiet. I did want to mention, I loved, I was watching, was it you and Dick? or No, it was, uh, it was one of the many feeds you have where they uh, mentioned that there's now a, well, actually, I, I didn't ever look for it, but there are several uh, Stardate calculators. So I just isn't that I would... funny? The start. Oh yeah, we were talking on the twit about uh, Star Trek, and I said, "Well, what's the? St- I can't remember what how it came up, but how would you know what the star date is?" Yeah, and we are, you know, t- today this podcast's date is is minus three one four three two seven point two eight. Just so you, you looked know, it so up, <laughs> of course, absolutely. And as it turns out, you just put Star Trek calculator in easy, in yeah. fact the, the little the little guesser thing that's guessing what what you're looking for it even had it on there so just wanted our listeners to know that we are minus 314 327.28 that's great um that's great there were i only had three notes in security news um the firefox updates are coming fast and furious lately um we just got updated to 3.0.9 which fixed a whole bunch of problems and then just two days ago, three days ago, we went to 3.0.10, um, which just fixed one more problem. So um, anybody who's got uh, Firefox is probably already up to speed on that. If you, if you haven't seen it, there is an update from 9 to 10. 
Um, and that's critical, by the way. It, it, it is a buffer overflow Yikes. problem in some text rendering. So you want to do that. I did also note uh, that Microsoft's out-of-phase update. Remember, they do the important security updates on the second Tuesday, and they do like two Tuesdays later, they do things that are sort of, well, you know, we just thought we'd throw these in. Um, these aren't super critical. Don't worry about them. Uh, but I noted that IE8 has now been added to Microsoft Update. So um, I, I was at, actually, I was at Starbucks, and I got this notification that yep. Uh, yep. they wanted to send me IE8. It's like, eh, well, I guess they must be confident enough of 8. I mean, my my feeling was it wasn't ready yet for prime time. I don't use it anymore except to go to Microsoft for updates. I'm completely converted to Firefox. So, you know, I'm not vulnerable to many security issues because, which I would imagine by default, IE8 will have a whole new slew that'll now have to be found and, and hopefully will, won't be biting too many people until they are. So anyway, uh, IE8 is out and Something we don't see very often. There was a a critical BlackBerry PDF vulnerability uh -oh. which was announced. Uh -oh. So BlackBerry users, I just you know we're all used to you know getting updated moment to moment by our Windows apps. But I did want to make sure that people who are using Blackberries um, knew that um, opening a PDF until they update their BlackBerry after this problem. Um, there, there are exploits that will allow your BlackBerry to get taken over, over which is, of course, not, not what you ever want. How, how, so it would be uh, you would download a PDF or you'd... It would be viewing a PDF viewing on one. your BlackBerry okay. is, I mean, the standard, you know, I mean, PDFs have become unbelievably complex. I mean, you know, they've got, they've got JavaScript support and, you know, the, the state-of-the-art free Adobe Reader is now hundreds of megabytes in size. It's like, I don't know what it's doing, but whatever it's doing, it's a lot of it. So, you know, hard to hard to imagine that there aren't problems when you've got that much code, okay. uh, which is, you know, taking in something and interpreting it. So there is that in the BlackBerry. I just wanted people to know. And in the spirit of the Q&A, uh, as I was going through um, my mailbag to collect our, our today's 12 questions, I ran across a SpinRite question so I thought, well, I'll do that as my little spinright mention of the week. Uh, this was from Jose Cerna in San Diego, who wrote to ask, he says, I use Spinrite regularly to keep all of my drives in top condition. But recently I bought a laptop with an SSD, a solid state drive. So I was wondering if Spinrite would be okay to run on it. And does it need it? Thank you for the great podcast. P.S. I sometimes fix computers for others. And I have used your product to fix their drive and or recover files. I know that this goes against your EULA, the end user license agreement. But what I have been doing is I have them purchase Spinrite in front of me. Then I download it for them and install it into a flash drive that they can then use to maintain their drives from then on. I have done this with three customers already, and they're very happy with Spinrite. And, of course, I'm very happy with Jose. for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jose. Or, it's a few yabba dabba doos right there. Yabba dabbas. <laughs> anyway, to answer his question about solid state drives, I can see absolutely no possible benefit to running Spinrite on a solid state drive. Um, we know that solid state drives, good ones, 
are very reliable. I just bought a 64 gig SSD um, for a new tablet that I own because I'm just I'm so conscious of of you know the, the the mechanics of a hard drive and and what kind of problems people have naturally I you know it's been it's been my bread and butter for for more than twenty years um, and um, this thing I checked it out has an MTBF a mean time before failure estimated this is the Samsung uh, sixty four gig SSD estimated at two million hours whoa so so you know theirs is good technology. It is possible to buy crappy solid-state drives. People are invariably going to do that. You know, there are multi-level storage as opposed to single-level cell storage. Um, you can, you know, you could get 64 gigs, for example, in a thumb that's for a couple, you know, maybe 100 bucks probably. But you get what you pay for in SSD technology. You know, I so, just bought a uh, – we, we've covered this a little bit on our PC Perspective show because uh, Ryan's very interested in this. And he has a uh, – a great guy, Alan Malventano, who has become an SSD expert. He's he's testing all the drives and stuff. Um, and uh, he also likes the Samsung drives. They recommended a Corsair model, which is uh, Samsung uh, parts, I believe. MLC, though, not SLC. Ooh. Yeah, okay. no, they said that's fine. That um, In fact, very few drives are using SLC. Those are the those are really the, only the enterprise drives at this point. They're extraordinarily expensive. This was still expensive. For 128 gigs, it was 330 bucks. Um, okay, see, I paid $800 for 64 gigs. You got an X25. Yeah. Intel. I don't know if the Intel's SLC. No, but, no, no. I got a Samsung. It's, it's, oh, you the, got a Samsung. Okay. It's, it's a Samsung, but it is a, an SLC. It is SLC. Okay. Right. I mean, it's, you know, again, this was, um, I've done something weird, Leo. Um, I've been spending many hours at, at Starbucks coding. By bringing a copy of my work, my regular home keyboard, um, because it's only on this full-size Northgate 102-key keyboard that I can type at full speed without even thinking. <laughs> See, and I can't so use I, those. They're so loud, I can't use them in the studio. I, they clatter. I, oh, exactly. <laughs> it sounds like and a I, teletype machine. I here. finally figured out that that was the problem was, you know, I'm when I'm hunched over my laptop, I just, it's like, okay, where's the delete key on this? You know, I mean, they're, it's, it's, it's a compressed keyboard for a laptop right. form factor. Right. That was my problem. So I thought, okay, I need a tablet that has no keyboard with a nice size screen and then I'll get a a P a old style XP, I mean XT to PS2 converter, then a PS2 to USB. So I have a chain of sort of dongles that convert this thing into something that runs now USB, and it's just fantastic. I have the tablet propped up on a on a little book stand in front of me, the keyboard there, and you'd be surprised how many looks I get from people who walk by, and go, "What the heck is that keyboard doing here?" Anyway, so. But I'm getting I'm hugely productive now. I've done five ten hour marathons in on the last five days wow. in a row. Yeah, From and that prevents carpal tunnel too. I think because there's more motion, it's more travel, fantastic. it's more physical. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. So anyway, yes, no need to run Spinrite on an SSD. Spinrite is all about mechanics and magnetics, neither of which exist in you know by design in an SSD. That's what you want to get rid of. In order to get reliability right. up, thus SSDs are extremely reliable. I have to tell you, you might, the speed on the uh, Corsair is amazing. Yeah. Uh, lo load times particularly. Uh, but, you know, I did some transcoding, too, um, 
the uh, because there's a lot of reading and writing and transcoding video, like twice as fast. I mean, remarkable differences. Yeah. So yeah. mostly access time be- benefit, I guess. Yep. And yeah. I just for me, it's that I mean, I've just I'm so twitchy about any portable machine with a hard drive because, you know, they're inherently they're moving around. They they they're going to get some bumps and things just inadvertently. And it's like, OK, this is my now my main development platform when I'm away from the house. And I, you know, I care about its reliability. I mean, you know, everybody cares about its reliability. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited about it. I th- you know, this, uh, th- th- they're still pricey, but I just thought uh, I'm going to give it a shot. Both Ryan and, and Alan pushed me to do it, and uh, I put it in the MacBook Pro, and I just, I, I love it. I, you know, yeah. I, I can't wait till the, dr- the prices drop. I'll put them in everything. Yeah, I'm not that excited for them to drop. Why? Oh, it's going to put you out of business. <laughs> Don't need spin right. <laughs> Oops. Well, you know what? I think here's what's going to happen. I certainly, it's the way I use usage, I plan is you'll use it for your boot drive, your applications, the stuff where you do a lot of I.O., and then you'll have a massive spinning drives, these terabyte yes. or two terabyte drives, for a data storage. It is the case that hard drives will not disappear overnight. I mean, they're just not going to. They are That technology is so mature, right. and they are so cost-effective. That and you know, Spinrite is recovering media for people now. You don't, you don't use Spinrite you know, to get Windows back. Um, you know, because you can always reinstall that. You use it for your priceless photos, your PhD thesis, your you know, you know your exactly. huge music collection exactly. for you know of borrowed CDs that you don't know you, 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 that <laughs> or, you don't or have. movies. Frankly, and, I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's and I think that 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 makes perfect sense. You know, why use Flash for something like that where speed is not important? It's a, it's storage. I right. bet you we will see these different classes of storage uh, for some time to come. So you're all right, sense. Steve. It makes sense that there would be a spread. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I'm and I've got my next product on the way. Good. Uh, and you know, uh, CryptoLink is is uh, is nascent, but going to be next. Well, you'll and always so, have a home on Twit too. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. I, you're the security guru. That's the good news. <laughs> There's always going to be a need for that. I don't care what kind of drives we use. What else you got? That's it. That's all? Yep. That's the story, Morning Glory. All right, well, let's take a break, and then we're going to come back. We've got 12 questions from 12 great listeners all about security, but I do want to mention before we go too much farther, our friends at GoToMeeting. You know I talk about Citrix a lot because uh, uh, they really do great remote access stuff, and really that's what online meeting is, if you think about it, is remote access to your computer where you have the PowerPoints, uh, you have the documents you guys are sharing, working on, collaborating on, you have the program for training go to meeting makes it very easy for somebody who doesn't have any remote access software on their system to join you in a meeting and i think that that's absolutely critical online meeting software has to be easy to use otherwise for your clients for your colleagues for the people who are going to use it, it, it otherwise if you've got them jumping through hoops they're not going to want to face it they're not going to want to meet with you this makes a meeting fun. I mean, imagine, you know, the conference call could be so boring. People are online with you and they're playing, you know, solitaire. Or they're answering their email or they're fiddling with their BlackBerry. You could just tell you've lost them. You know, they just kind of drift away. They answer everything three seconds after you ask it. Go to meeting takes that conference call and makes it something engaging, something fun, uh, something useful. Eliminate those travel uh, needs the, the for the in-person meeting. Have your meetings on the phone, but have them online too with GoToMeeting. 
I want you to try it free for 30 days. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. Sign up right now. Take you a couple of clicks of the mouse. It's very easy to install. Yes, it's 128-bit SSL encrypted. It's the most secure product out there. There has never been an exploit. Never been an exploit with GoToMeeting. It's that safe. Uh, so you know, even the U.S. government can use this for secure meetings. And and man, I'm a, it's so easy to use. It's so straightforward, and it's free. By the way, forty nine dollars a month if you decide to sign up includes free voice teleconferencing, free voice over the internet. Um, this is a great solution for Macs and Windows, so everybody can participate in your meetings. Go to meeting dot com slash security now. Give it a try today. Absolutely free for the next thirty days. Show your clients, your colleagues, your boss. They'll all agree. Go to meeting. It's changing the way we do business. Go to meeting.com slash security now. I have the questions, Mr. Steve. Are you ready for me to, yes, to read them and to you? We have a special first question. From Elaine. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> Elaine, our illustrious audio transcriber, asks this week's first question, and it's appropriately about Conficker. Yeah, there were a, there were a bunch of questions that I ran across in the mailbag. There were some things I had I sort of glossed over or I didn't cover. So we've got a, we'll have some clarification of uh, the issues from uh, last week. But do start if you haven't listened to last week's show, episode one ninety three. The whole show's on Conficker in great detail. How it works, uh, what the dangers are, how it's you know spreading. She says this Conficker thing's been giving me a headache for weeks ever since you first mentioned it. I don't need help with spelling any names in the podcast, <laughs> often a cause of concern. She says, instead, I need help with my own head, please. What I don't understand is when you keep saying it's, quote, generating domain names, end quote, and you say it's gone from generating 250 or 500 to 50,000 domain names, what does that mean? Don't those generated domain names need to be registered in order to be used by the worm? I must be misunderstanding something at a really basic level. Because it looks to me like it's costing someone half a million bucks a day just to run the worm. I usually try to keep my ignorance to myself, but this is really bothering me from week to week. Hey, Elaine, that's great. She's paying attention, and I should ask that question. That's a great question. What's the deal, Steve? It is a great question, and I don't think I was clear enough in explaining why this is so clever. The idea is that that the worm generates a huge number of potential domain names and at random chooses from among those. So, and it's based on the current UTC um, calendar date. So, so everybody knows what the algorithm is. The, the, the bad guys that designed all this, they know what the algorithm is. The white hats that have reverse engineered all this know what the algorithm is. And and what's clever about this is that this succeeds even with full reverse engineering. That is, we know we cannot protect the secrets of anything that's need that needs to run remotely. Just like the DVD or you know Blu-ray and HD guys were unable to protect the secrets even in their their most fancy encryption copy protection technology. You know you just can't because if if a device has to run in order to display it, then you can reverse engineer what it's doing, no matter what the, you know, the the people who try to prevent that, whether they're good guys or bad guys, no matter how much they try to be clever to keep that from happening. So we know that 
Everybody understands the algorithm. So this succeeds even in the presence of that complete documentation of the algorithm. Every day, a, a set of possible domain names that has increased in size after April 1st from, from a few hundred to 50,000, every day a set of those are possible. From among those, the worm chooses only 500 to actually attempt to go to. So the way this works in a large population of worms is the, the, the good guys you know, on our side, the white hats, if they wanted to block all of the possible domains from which on any given day all the conficker worms could get updated, they would have to preemptively register those all of those 50,000 domains. Whereas the, the, the clever black hat, the clever author of Conferger, only needs, needs to register one or several. He knows ahead of time day. what the domain's going to be. Everybody does. Yeah. The, the good guys and the bad guys. But my point is to preempt the, the update from getting into the new Conferger peer-to-peer network – that to, to preempt it, all of the domains have to be blocked. To, to get it in, only one has to be registered because some of those worms will contact, choosing randomly, that one domain, and that will be enough to, to get them updated. And then they use the peer-to-peer network to update all the other worms that contacted domains that were not registered or were registered by the good guys. To, 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 to block it. So that's what's so clever is that to, I mean, every single day, 50,000 new domains are going to be probed. And this is now in 110 top level, you know, like not just .com and edu and org and net, but now all these obscure 110 top level domains, which makes preemptively registering them basically impossible. Right. And all the bad guy has to do is a few days ahead, just camp out, put a server on one of the domains that he knows in a couple days some small percentage of Conficker will visit. And so he needs to register one. The bad guys need to register all of them. The good guys. If they're, if they're gonna, I mean, sorry, the good guys need, need to register all of them if they're going to block it. And all of them every single day. It's just not possible. Yeah. So it it really creates this dramatic asymmetry of effort, which is why I think this was, you know, and this was extremely clever. And, oh, yeah. you know, I you can imagine that this will now be the paradigm for for bad guys keeping in touch with their botnets is this kind of algorithm because it is simple to implement. It is very clever and it is, you know, there's really nothing you can do to 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 prevent um that asymmetry from existing. Very interesting. Thank you for asking that, Elaine. And I I'm apologize for not asking it myself. Doug Curry in Houston, Texas asks, what have I missed? Stephen Leo, I just listening to a 192 where you mentioned that the Conficker worm uses public key encryption, digital signatures to protect itself from being spoofed with updates from someone other than the original authors. Again, a nice slick thing to do. 
You said that even if you got the public key, there was no way to reverse engineer the private key. Of course, that's the point behind public key encryption. Fair enough. But help me out here because I've got to be missing something. I'm clearly no cryptographer. But if you know the public key and encrypting algorithm, couldn't you put some set of known data through the algorithm using the public key, obtaining the encrypted output, attempt to decrypt that output with the same algorithm and a sequence of successive potential private keys? There's the issue. We'll get to that. Comparing the encrypted output to the original, in other words, a brute force attack against this public key, and given that a brute force attack would require massive amounts of computing power, could you not use a distributed computing methodology like SETI at home in order to get a large number of computers all working on small sections of the problem simultaneously to come up with a solution in a reasonable amount of time? Well, you could could, could do that, couldn't you, Steve? Uh, no. No. <laughs> no. Oh, um, oh. Not, not even... Not even close now we've never discussed brute force um attacks against public key encryption which is the reason this question caught my attention we've discussed extensively brute force attacks against symmetric right encryption right um now okay there's two reasons um first of all remember that symmetric keys are eh, there they used to be 64 bits now you probably need 92 but people are at 128 or 256 okay though there are enough combinations in 120 even 128 bit key that brute forcing a symmetric encryption is completely infeasible and what do we know about symmetric versus asymmetric encryption we know symmetric is fantastically fast and asymmetric, that is public key encryption, is agonizingly slow. It is so slow because of the math involved, you know, all kinds of exponentiation and, 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 and higher level curve elliptical functions and things. It is so slow that nobody uses it to encrypt anything but a symmetric key. So, as we've discussed before, the way you use public key encryption to encrypt a block is you, ra- you choose a random number with a very good random number generator as your symmetric key. You use that to encrypt the block of, of payload because it's so fast. Then you only use the public key technology to encrypt just that one little 128-bit, 256, whatever it is, symmetric key because public key encryption is so slow. Now, not only is public key encryption slow, meaning that, okay, brute forcing attacks are, are you know, just infeasible for that reason, but due to the different nature of asymmetric encryption versus symmetric encryption, the key lengths are much longer, like 1,024 bits or 2048 bits. And you need that kind of a key length to get the equivalent level of protection that you get with a much shorter, like 128-bit symmetric key. So on one hand, the algorithms are very slow, and the key lengths are 8 or 16 times longer. So, So that's why we've never discussed brute forcing public key encryption, although the fact that we hadn't explicitly ever discussed it, I thought, well, this is a really good point. You know, Doug's question is something that we haven't covered before. So 
now we have. So the deal is the the the, the raw number of possibilities makes a brute force impossible. Two, it, it two two things: the raw number of possibilities. That is already. 128 bits is so many possibilities with a fast algorithm right. that you that there just isn't time right. in like you know billions of years. But now you're now, using 2096 yes. bits, and it's slow. And exactly, <laughs> and every single one you try is incredibly costly in right. terms of time. It's just you know nobody ever attempts to brute force public key encryption. They do try to find mistakes in the algorithms or... Yeah, that's you know, your back door. That's your short, hole. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Other shortcuts of some kind, but just not brute force because it's very clear to anyone who begins to try, oh, gee, let's see, we tried six keys in the last 30 seconds. Um, how many more millennia? I mean, you know, the universe will expand and contract and expand and contract many times before you have a chance to get that to happen. <laughs> you just can't do it. That's no. just the bottom, the bottom line. You just can't. Yeah. Do Consequently, it. the Conforker guys do not need to worry about anybody replacing their no. payload. No. Russell Gordon in Houston, Texas shares some experience and wisdom with windows using windows in process control environments. I'll find out what that is in a second. I just paused the security now uh, 192 I was listening to so I could write and thank Steve for his response to Phil in Montreal. I have worked in the process automation industry for 19 years programming PLCs, programmable logic controllers, and designing the operator screens called HMIs, the human machine interface, that allow the operator to interface with the control system. While the PLCs are not running on Windows, the software to program them is, and the HMIs are usually industrialized PCs running Windows, of course. I recently had to chase the Conficker worm out of a brewery because it was running rampant on their HMIs, which are unfortunately all connected to the corporate network. We also have Windows PCs using the control systems running pipelines and chemical and pharmaceutical plants. Luckily, these are not connected to the Internet like the brewery. I guess a brewery is not considered essential technology in the same way that pipelines and pharmaceuticals are. Luckily, these are not, uh, as I said, connected. But all it takes is a rogue laptop to bring something into the network, of course. Thank you, Steve, for acknowledging the current state of Windows as it is. I, too, understand how it got this way by supporting backward compatibility, but I also know how much better it could be. Russell Gordon. Yeah, so that that, that was essentially... You know, here's another person's direct experience with with Windows and non-Windows systems or also networked and non-networked Windows systems. Here, he's not saying that, you know, Windows itself is a problem, but letting them communicate is a problem because, you know, you as he said, you bring a rogue laptop into the network and suddenly your off-the-net system is is prone to be infected by something that's been brought into the network. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Just not a good idea. Yeah. Uh, question four, uh, Paul Rudy in Astoria, Queens, shares his Windows in the machine story. He writes, I was just listening to number 64, listener feedback, and it prompted me to send you this message. I recently went to my local TD bank, so I could withdraw some cash. I looked at one of the three ATMs, noticed it was sitting at a Windows XP professional lock on screen. That is not inspiring confidence, I'm afraid. Oh, 
Control-Alt-Delete. It's bad enough that my online password is limited to relatively simple rules, but now I see the ATM that controls my money is running Windows XP. I just pray they keep the OS up to date. I would hate to think that Conficker or some other lovely worm was on this machine keeping track of everyone's ATM card and PIN number. This cannot be normal. No, Leo, that's my point. It is. It's this is what's so disheartening Ugh. is is that you know, and I don't I'm not gonna say anything about what language that ATM software was written in. You know it's probably Visual what, Basic. Uh, um but you know, we don't know, but this it, it you know, again, sometimes you see these systems <sighs> unmasked as this guy that's did. Depressing. One of the three ATMs wanted, was waiting for someone to log in by, you know, control alt delete. Um, which means where's Windows underneath, and and it is truly, truly wrong that that kind of application has a consumer. I mean, this is for consumers. This is not for industry. You know, no, notice that the brewery we the brewery we discussed before. It, they do use Windows for their UI Just their interface. Yeah. Yes, but the actual process control systems are non-Windows. That's the stuff that's turning the valves and running the motors and making sure that beer comes out the other end instead of, you know, <laughs> Lord knows what, what you would get if, if those valves and pumps were being set incorrectly. Um, so it is, it is you know, there, what I'm seeing is evidence of this creeping use of windows uh. in inappropriate instances, in places where you absolutely should not use Windows. I mean, and there are places. I mean, certainly consumers are using it. And, you know, I'm using it. I'm sitting in front of it right now. But, you know, but, not but nothing's going to go. Nothing's going to go wrong if if it crashes. Right. I mean, because I'm not controlling a nuclear reactor right. with Windows. Oh, I hate to think that that's happening. Oh, yeah. Well, but I bet it is. Let's hope not. Oh. <sighs> Mark Davis, Sandston, Virginia, takes issue with Steve's Microsoft bashing. Okay, I, I was hoping we'd get a rebuttal. Let's hear, let's hear what he has to say. I've been a long time listening to security now. I'm not sure when I began listening, but I enjoy hearing about what is happening with computer security. But I take issue with always making Microsoft the bad software company. I agree they could do a better job, as all software companies and writers of software with security bugs and bugs should do. The issue is I, I I take the issue with the issue I take is that most issues. Okay. I'm just going to rephrase this. <laughs> most issues with infected computers come from the users themselves. That's what I take issue with. I find they're either, either too lazy with patching the machines or they turn off security in their software or they never read the manual or instructions about how to secure their computer equipment the moment software starts making people do the things they should is when they start complaining the program's not user-friendly and why do i have to click three times to tell a program to do something well that's a good point we all know that software has bugs in it and there are people out there who will spend time looking to find those bugs the reason certain software gets targeted is because it has most of the market and when someone else has more of the market we'll hear about how bad their software is when the bad people decide it's worth targeting and yes I have Spinrite, which is the only tool for those times when the hard drive says, Captain, I don't know how much more I can take. So here's the point. I mean, you know, I hate it when people blame users. Look, I do a radio show for normal people, <laughs> users. And the first thing I say 
is it you shouldn't have to be a security expert. And because you do have to be a security expert to use Windows, I, I encourage them to use something else. Okay, I I think I probably made myself clear already. Yes. But I, I want to make sure that, that, that Mark and anybody else who feels I was unfairly bashing Microsoft understands. Now, okay, it is the case that I called Windows a big steaming pile of crap a couple weeks ago. So there's that. But my point is not that. My point is the misapplication of Windows, as I was talking about before. I mean, Microsoft, all they've got is Windows. If Microsoft created a a little real-time operating system kernel that was designed to be lean and mean and run breweries, I would would bet they could do it, as long as they didn't use summer uh, interns to do the programming, (laughs) as unfortunately they do on a lot of the stuff that we're running. Um, the you know the 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 stories of the of the creation of NT. I read several books about that are just horrifying about you know the critical systems that some random summer intern was given to work on. It's like okay, fine, you know, looks like you did a good job. You know, good luck with your junior year. Um, there are there is uh, embedded Windows, I think, and there's CE and and stuff. And yeah, but all that is is stripped down. Yeah, steaming pile. Right. Um, you know, That's it's good point. It's, it's not rewritten from scratch, and in fact. What what Microsoft has done, unfortunately, is they have they have made decisions over time which are were un which were they felt were warranted then, but which Im- negatively impacted the stability of the system. There was once the original design of NT was remember it was a multi API kernel. You could run POSIX and you could run. Um, uh, 16-bit windows and 32-bit windows. It was sort of had this plug-in architecture. It was sort of a microkernel approach. And, gee, we need more performance. Right. So let's move GDI into the kernel. Oh, shoot. Now that means that a buffer overflow displaying a JPEG is a kernel overflow rather than out in the user space where it can't do any damage. And so you can see that the decisions Microsoft has made over time for expedience sake have ended up having dramatic security implications. Okay. I guess I'm not supporting um, Mark's rebuttal here, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, I, I, I understand the software is difficult to create. I don't blame ever, ever Microsoft for having bugs. I blame their policies. I blame them for the things they deliberately do like putting scripting in email, like once having scripting in Windows metafiles, apparently on purpose. And and those sorts of policy decisions or moving GDI, the graphics device interface, into the kernel, that's what you do not do. And Microsoft does it over and over and over from a, due to a lack of respect for the consequences of these things. But the other issue separate from this is there are places – you should not use Windows anywhere. Anywhere. Where system, yeah, well, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I had to say that. <laughs> anywhere that you absolutely need security and reliability, that's not Windows. We all know that's not Windows. Yeah. And you could argue, okay, it's not Commodore 64 or Mac OS X or, or Linux or, or you know, any of the big 
popular consumer OSs. And I wouldn't agree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I, I, there is a whole separate class of industrial strength operating systems that, con- that consumers have never used because they don't have all the fluff on them. They don't do all the things that, that we want. They may not even have network connectivity like, like we're used to. But they're, they are what you want running your ATM at your local bank yes. and yes. the nuclear reactor you know, in the next county. That's what you want, not Windows. They're, and they're, you know, they're secure. Uh, I think, you know, BSD, what is it? Open BSD? Which one is the one that you like that's the most secure? Net BSD? I'm, I'm using free BSD. Free BSD, that's it. Yeah. I mean, there are uh, operating systems designed from the ground up to be secure that are right. full op- that are full consumer operating systems. I mean, it is doable if, you, yes. if that's it, your intent. Well, and that's a very good point. And Microsoft has not chosen that path. Microsoft, as I said, has chosen over and over expediency. And and here's the real problem is that now that hardware has caught up, you really don't need GDI in the kernel so much. But back at one point, you did. And that's where it's living now. Well, and that's and there's where the legacy, the uh, compatibility is biting them because they can't take it out. Right. Uh, Even if they know better now, they can't. Bill and Walnut Creek joins the uh, operating discussion with a comment about the next cube. Hmm. Steve, I see we're in agreement with just about how steamy a pile Windows is. I've used many operating systems, Windows, Mac OS 9, Solaris, Red Hat Linux, HPUX, IRIX, AIX, BOS, etc. If I have any criticism of my past work on technology, it was most of the industry completely missed what Next was doing. Think about this. It has been ported to these CPU architectures, the Motorola 68030. Intel, PowerPC, Intel, ARM. All of these transitions were completely seamless. It is a tribute to the flexibility of the microkernel architecture that Next has maintained despite some cost and performance. Just imagine if Microsoft had to move Windows to a new CPU architecture. Oh, that's Uh, not going to happen. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, that's not going to happen. The big problem is that Microsoft has packed almost everything into the kernel space. This is what you were talking about, to give them the performance advantage in the 90s, but now that... Rooster is coming home. I really think Apple has an edge in everyone else, thanks to the heritage of Next that is now the heart of OS X. Time will tell, but so far so good. The developer environment is second to none. It's a nice hybrid of proprietary and open source uh, software. I could go on, but I'm sure you either already know or can research it yourself. Yeah, it uses the mock kernel. What is a microkernel? The, the, the idea with a microkernel is, I mean, as it sounds, it's you you... You have a very small trusted environment that provides the minimum set of services, so literally a very small core. The beauty of that is that it's much easier to design a a trusted, privileged, high security environment which is small than it is to like you know do something like Windows in that kind of environment. And then the the idea then is that everything else that the operating system needs is an is an external non-trusted module which uses that set of core surfaces so things like memory allocation and memory management process creation and 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 thread creation um the scheduler that 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 jumps the processor around among all the processes that that are running you know those fundamental services of the operating system um, are 
are the microkernel, and then everything else is, and, and that's trusted. That has to work. That has to be, you know, bulletproof and and um, and um, provably, knowably secure. But then you 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 design the system so that all the other things that the OS provides, even though they are traditional operating system services, they're provided as sort of add-ons outside of this microkernel. And and because they're outside, problems in them cannot affect the rest of the system. They're, they're, so there's a much better sense of, of, of containment. And the bloat that all of these systems end up acquiring over time, the, the bloat is not kernel bloat. It's it's out. It's it's user space bloat. It's outside of the kernel. So if there's mistakes in the bloat, as there inevitably is, they can't hurt you nearly to the degree that that mistakes in a bloated kernel will. Linux uses something called a modular kernel, uh, which is, I guess, kind of a little bit of both. You have a kernel, but you can add modules, compile them in to add capability. I guess it's not a microkernel. Really. Um and it hasn't Windows Seven? Isn't there something modular about Windows Seven's architecture? Yeah, they uh, claim to have a modular kernel uh, now and a modular system. <laughs> well, well, they have that buzzword then. You know what? They're, yeah, you know what they're doing, which is 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 interesting. I'm sure we'll cover this in future shows. They've decided with Windows Seven to, to build in compatibility, basically in virtualization. So you know they've announced that they're going to include with the professional versions. Yep, XP, XP, vir- virtual. Yep. So maybe this is their way out of this uh, this uh, corner they've painted themselves into is, well, we could still be compatible. We just do it in virtualization. Well, remember that um, I think it's in with Windows 7 that all support for 16-bit code goes away. And I think this demonstrates that Microsoft is just is phenomenally unwilling to break anything. Yeah. And so... They're saying, wait a minute, you know, we, I mean, no doubt there is still 16 bit code somewhere that has to run. And I'm sure that, that there are, there are some, um, um, corporate customers that are saying, look, you know, we've got 16 bit code written by people that have wandered off so long ago, you know, their, their forwarding addresses, uh, no longer forward to a valid address. <laughs> and so someone somewhere is saying, we have to have 16-bit compatibility, and I'm sure that Microsoft said, "Uh, okay, let's we'll give you virtual. We'll we'll give you XP in a VM because XP still runs um, 16-bit code, and that way, you know, uh, you'll be good. It's a good solution, actually. Yeah. That's how I run uh, XP is in virtualization. Um, Andy in Latvia and. If that were not enough, Peter Cat in Syracuse asked good and obvious, in retrospect, questions about Conficker. And he writes, hello, I was wondering how hard it is to trace the actual people who have registered the domains for the Conficker server used by the Conficker clients. That's where those uh, updates occur. And Peter asked, Steve, in last week's Security Now, quite informative as always, wouldn't it be possible to track down the person or people behind Conficker? By finding out who registered the domains it's using? Yeah, there are a lot of them, but I think someone would be following the money, even if they're using stolen credit card numbers to pay. The registration orders must be coming from a computer somewhere. Couldn't its IP address be recorded? These two questions represent many that I received. People saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, why not just track down the guys that register the domains? Well, now we've got 
50,000 domains, only one or two or a handful of which need to be registered. But more importantly, unless you are unless you are registering um, or, or, for example, um, acquiring an SSL certificate where your identity needs to be covered, and these, uh, it, there is no SSL dialogue going on with Configure. It uses standard unencrypted connections, even though the payload that it is passing back and forth itself is encrypted. It turns out, I mean, it is very easy to uh, completely anonymously register a domain. We know, for example, that the Tor network, the Onion Router network, is very good about anonymizing IPs. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if whomever is setting up these IPs is bouncing through Tor or maybe has their own network or maybe using their own existing Convoker fleet as, as an anonymizing service, you know, going through somebody else's machine that they have control of and doing that, that work there. And there are lots of ways... I mean, there are so many registrars around, especially when you're now expanded to 110 different domains, that it is entirely possible to to forge an identity and and register a domain with you know with absolutely zero credentials. Well, and uh, I don't know if this is uh, germane in this situation, but uh, um, GJ Dunga says in our Stickham chat room. Remember, you don't have to register the domain; you just have to infect the computer that's providing that uh, serving that domain. In this case, because they're random domain names, I think you, in fact, have to register that domain. It's unlikely that anybody's going to have Q3791498887321. Yes, very good point. Yeah. And, and <laughs> yes, yes. But, but it, other worms could take advantage of that fact uh, by pointing you to a site that they uh, know they can compromise. Sure. Fact, that, that has happened in the past. Yep. Uh, Bill Everson, Green Bay, Wisconsin, brings news of an Iron Key update. Remember, that's the USB thumb drive we really liked. It had all those security features in it. And it's now got one new, very cool one. Oh, I'm liking this. Steve, in case no one has told you about this yet, I'm going to get on. I'm going to order one right now. Iron Key now supports VeriSign's one-time passwords. I downloaded the update for my Iron Key. Oh, you didn't even have to buy a new one. It just updates right. And I'm now able to access my PayPal account with either the football or the Iron Key. Yes! Since I have both activated, the Iron Key can't log on automatically. Since PayPal brings up a screen that asks me which token I want to use. Yeah, that's me too. But it is a simple matter to select the Iron Key token and have it manually generate the OTP. That is cool. So now you can carry a one-time... This is basically makes it like a YubiKey, right? Yes. Um, uh, what's happened is... VeriSign has opened up the SDK. The they, they have create a software development kit for people who want to do this. VeriSign. Oh, and also Leo, there's now an iPhone app from VeriSign. Oh, so you can you can install this on your iPhone. Um, and, Even better, so it can generate the passwords too. Yes, um, and they, they've got a whole bunch of razors, and uh, there, there's a long list of them. I've got this on my. I didn't have a chance to follow it up in detail, but I did get news directly from VeriSign uh, uh, because the guys thought that I would that, that our that our listeners would find this interesting. So first we got Iron Key, now iPhone, and many other phones. Um, and I'll have a, a I'll do some research about oh, it. Oh, it's and get, free have the, too! Wow. Yep. So so it has a credential ID that I would then register with PayPal with VeriSign. Verisign. Okay, I'm already registered using their uh, their card. Right. And all of the providers who are using Verisign as their back-end authentication, this is then compatible with. Now, 
point of order, you, you might be a little less um, secure because you're putting it on your iPhone. If somebody gets good. your iPhone, they've got your card. Yep. Good yeah. point. Yeah. However, that's fantastic. It's a it's called VIP access, which is isn't that what they call it on the web as well? Yes. Yeah. Verisign Identity Protection. I'm downloading it right now. That's awesome. (laughs) I almost bought an iron key, but I don't even need that. Nope. Wow. Cool. Oh, I'm sorry. I should probably continue with the show before I start installing that on my system. Uh, This is uh, Bill Gearheiser in Boca Raton, Florida. He thought the Configure podcast left out something crucial. Steve, your Configure podcast was fantastic. And fascinating, but you left out the most important part. How do we know if we've got it? Very good point. I did <laughs> I make so. the com- I did make the comment that Conficker has always been blocking um, DNS access for security related sites. So, for example, you cannot go to um, Symantec.com or McAfee or a number of other sites. But I thought this was. Also, a good time to remind people that we all, we all Windows users, have the Microsoft uh, software, the, the malicious software removal tool in our systems, and it's always being updated monthly on the second Tuesday of the month. And remember, running it manually is fun. Um, it does a, it has the option of doing a deep scan, and it's as simple as just clicking on Start. And then run in your to bring up the little run dialog box and put in mrt.exe. mrt.exe. Hit enter, a dialog pops up, and among other things, there's a link right there that lets you look at the list of all the things it's aware of. And in alphabetical order, Conficker is is uh, is among the many things that this Microsoft malicious removal tool. Um, is aware of so you can absolutely just you know bring up the little run dialog under the start menu type mrt.exe fire this puppy up and give it a deep scan and then go away for dinner because it'll take a while but uh, that way you can you can manually run this test and be sure mrt and microsoft's uh, mrt uh, has had that since January, I think. Yes, it's been aware of Configure for yeah. for months, like and it is being updated. Oh, also, when it pops up, it, you know, make sure that you've got the current version. We did run across a a, a Q and A some weeks ago where someone was saying, "Hey, I, you know, I popped it up and it said November of '08, and this was in in um in March of '09." Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I just popped mine up, and sure enough, it says April 2009. So make sure you got the current one. Because that would be an indication that Windows Update is not updating. Yes. And we've seen that happen, too. Yep. Very important. Uh, D. Larson in Portland, Oregon, and Todd Boring in Houston, Texas, both wonder what Conficker is up to. D. Larson writes, I love the show, guys, especially the last show about Conficker. I'm not sure what you could call an... I am not what you could call an especially a technical person. My question is, what does Conficker do once it's on your computer? And how can you tell if it's on your system? It sounded like right now Configure is lying in wait and isn't actually doing anything besides updating itself, infecting others, and staying alive. Is it logging keystrokes? Is it tracking traffic to send home later? Close the loop for me. And Todd says, Stephen Leo, thanks for the great podcast on Configure. Fascinating stuff. Makes me wish I were a programmer working for the NSA or something. That's true. It's really an interesting field. 
You talked at length about how Conficker propagates and how it updates and defends itself. But I'm still wondering, what does it do? It seems apparent that it has botnet potential, as its owners could send an update command for all infected machines to, say, DDoS, a particular website or corporate internet linkages. Any proof of it gathering, then delivering data to the author from the infected system? What does Conficker do, Steve? Well, these are great questions because I sort of implied but didn't explicitly say that until E, which is where we are now, Conficker version E, Conficker itself, as as D. Larson said, basically was just establishing itself. It was creating a beachhead of of this infection among well, 10 million machines, if, if you count all the ones Microsoft has removed it from. That is, you know, the, the MSRT we were just talking about has been effective in removing it from, you know, not tens of millions, but, you know, more than 10 million machines. So there's been this battle going on. Um, versions A, B, C, and D, they pretty much just existed to exist. It was this technology... Um, as, as D. Larson suggests, where, you know, is it just sitting there infecting other machines, updating itself and staying alive? Yes. Now, E is behaving differently. It's installing. Um, there are two different reports. There's a spam botnet called WhaleDAC, which um, is well known, which uh, is by the same people who did the, the very famous storm botnet. We, we remember the storm worm from, from times past. And so this uh, Conficker E is installing the, this WhaleDAC spam botnet, and a different report indicates that it is also installing some uh, malicious nagware uh, spyware Protect 2009 specifically, which is one of those things that pops up and says, Oh, we've just scanned your computer, and it looks like you you have an infection. Anyway, it duns you, just bothering you to death with these pop-up dialogues until you pay forty nine ninety five for a download that does nothing. So it's basically just you know sort of briberyware, I guess. Um, the other change is that the E variant, which has now been analyzed and looked at since. Uh, we, we we talked about C in detail last week. It has restored the original vulnerability. That is, it's using the original unpatched machine um, problem to spread. So so whereas the later variants of Conficker were not using the original, they were not attempting to exploit the original unpatched vulnerability. Um, uh, that Microsoft fixed in October of 08, E is doing so. So it is now emitting probes looking for newly non-patched machines to take over. And the sense is, among the, in the security community, is that some of the later behavior, which seemed to be less aggressive, was in fact resulting in a decrease in, po- in conficker population, that the author may have been getting a little worried that some of the games he was playing w- with changing it, its survival and replication strategy, you know, weren't working. And so he's gone back to its to traditional dot a style spreading, which is what really made Conficker as potent as it was. 
Very interesting. So, and, you know, the, the bottom line is the the answer is Configure until recently. Well, Configure itself is still just a, a delivery mechanism. It, it it it's a worm that exists to exist to communicate to build itself. Yet, because it has the ability to to install and to, and to acquire update updates to itself and also other third party packages, it has now begun to essentially generate cash. And ultimately, that's what these things are for these days is, you know, until now, it was sort of a, a technical curiosity. Now it's installed a it's installing a spamming botnet, this whale DAC botnet and this this, you know, uh, Dunning pop up spyware protect 2009 stuff um, in order to begin generating some money. <laughs> I think they're like uh, most internet startups. They're content to uh, establish a base of users before they go for yep. the monetization or public offering. <laughs> Barry, question 11. Barry, working somewhere for the government in Minnesota, writes, Hi, Steve. I've been listening since the beginning uh, of the show, and I'm a fan, but I must take exception to your comment in episode 193, that you haven't yet seen a smart government person. You didn't oh. say that, did you? Yeah. Steve. I kind of did. Steve, Steve, Steve. It isn't what I meant, but let's Of let, course it's let, not what you let's meant. Let's hear Barry out, and I will explain. Yeah. I know that's not what you meant, because I know you know better than that. As the CISO of a large state agency, I have the privilege of working with many very smart staff and colleagues. My agency is involved in the healthcare and EHR world, and I share your concerns about the push toward online medical records and the associated security issues. However, there are clear medical benefits to the consumer, and that's the main driver. You and Leo answered your own questions within a minute or two of your statement. However, you didn't retract that statement. The push to move a product or service to market and accelerated development timelines drives so much that we in the security industry do, whether in government or business. In the government sector, we're also subject to the whims of elected officials perhaps not unlike those of corporate executives. It's the rare organization that truly builds security in, although we're all united in that quest. This is a common theme in our industry, and one you've discussed at length in your fine show. I suspect we'll find that the compromised Pentagon computers were internet-connected because of a requirement to make them accessible to external contractors. The breach itself may have been caused either by compromising the contractor endpoint or the remote access process, perhaps via social engineering or a weak password or a patch that wasn't applied because of a possible incompatibility with the development code. All of those things happen. I also suspect that appropriate security personnel warned about that possibility, but were overruled. So please recognize that those of us responsible for security of government systems, assets, and data are doing all we can with minimal resources and budgets to secure that data and maintain citizen confidence. Keep up the great work, minus that that one statement. Well said. I really, really apologize. Um, I I know that I said that because Barry was not the only person to write. Men, there were well, we I heard from many government people who said, you know, how could you say that you know all government people are stupid? Or I mean, I didn't use that word, but but I I'm you know, and I'm thinking, how could I have said that? And I know exactly what I was thinking at the time. And I was thinking about the legislators 
That's... who I see interviewed. <laughs> there you go. That are just <laughs> That's a different I mean, matter. clueless yeah. about this stuff. I mean, I absolutely meant no slight to you know the actual people like Barry that are on the ground, as they say now, you know, doing this work. Of, of course not. It was the people, frankly, legislators who I just I just haven't seen one that understands this. Um, so and, you know, I know the even they, too, are dealing with a bureaucracy that I can't even comprehend. That would just make me shoot myself if if I had to deal with that on a daily basis. So, you know, they're doing things I can't do either in a different way. Right. Um, so anyway, I have the greatest respect for government employees who are working as hard as they can, like Barry, and facing, as he says, resource constraints that are probably much tighter even than than the corporate world has. Yeah. So I yeah. certainly apologize for having given that impression. It was not what I meant. As do I. Neither one of us believes that, for sure. No. No. Sam in Alsager, UK, is smarter than your average monkey and the author of our last question. Hi, Steve. You said in a recent Security Now episode that Visual Basic, quote, allows monkeys to program. (laughs) You know, these things happen. (laughs) Uh, I'm a computing student and a technology enthusiast, and I feel that's a bit harsh for someone like me or someone in a similar position. I know you started programming at my age, 16, but times have changed a lot. I've grown up very literate with computers. However, programming is, uh, is very, very different. At times, I've racked my brain for hours to get a program to do something or uh, have to play around with variables or data types. And so I feel it's a bit harsh to assume that anyone, even monkeys, can program. There's been no evidence that monkeys can program, by the way. When I started using uh, programming uh, with limited help and with the web being clogged up with Useless crap doesn't help a lot either. Not everybody's an amazing assembly language programmer like you are, although we would like to be. And I can well understand that as one further increases their knowledge of computers, we tend to grow farther away from the less technically literate. And I understand less uh, why they may not know something or understand something. So I end up by saying, I understand where you're coming from, but please try to be a bit more understanding of the people just beginning with this stuff. This doesn't change how I feel about the show. I just wanted to shout out for the people who are getting started or a little less technical. Thanks a bunch for yours and Leo's hard work, Sam. Sam, that's a great letter. And you're not a monkey, but you really should take a look at Python. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Now, okay. <laughs> I, I did say that monkeys could program Visual Basic. But not that all Visual Basic programmers are monkeys. Exactly. It was a logical... Thank you, Leo. A logical error. Yes. Um... And, and nor do I think that all Visual Basic programmers are monkeys. Um, I should explain also something that is true, which is buried now in the depths of history. And I doubt that many of our listeners will remember, although I know that Nevit Basker, who was the original product manager for Visual Basic, remembers. Um, I am largely credited, uh, that is me, Steve Gibson, Security Now podcast with putting Visual Basic on the map. What? I didn't know that. Yes. Um, They came up with it. I was writing the InfoWorld column. The product manager, a neat gal named Nevit Basker, came down to Southern California to show this new thing to me. And, And we were all blown away. I mean, this was the first time we saw anything like this. 
where you had you know a little toolbar of controls and you drag them over and stretch them out and then you wire up event handlers for the various things and before you know it you have a program and I'll never forget um, one of my developers because um, this is when GRC was growing and we were probably about maybe 20 people at that point and I thought I I could stand having anybody else write code which turned out not to be the case um, there, thus we're three of us now um, but uh, this guy's name was Millard Ellingsworth the <laughs> third I love it and Millard made a comment I will never forget we were standing there I mean I was just in awe and he said oh this is really bad and I said what what do you mean he says anybody can write Windows programs now. He didn't refer to monkeys, but, you know, he talked about humans, any human. Um, okay, I was so impressed that I wrote three columns. The next three weeks of my <laughs> weekly InfoWorld column were about Visual Basic jumping up and down. I mean, I was just, I thought, this is just fantastic. And I once, in one of my trips up to Redmond, uh, maybe a year or two later, um, I, I ended up having the occasion to have dinner with a group of Microsoft people, including Nevitt. And she said that that following summer, maybe a couple months after I had written the columns in InfoWorld, she was in Europe doing a European tour to introduce her, pro, her product, Visual Basic, around, you know, to all of their corporate customers and various people there. And she said that every door was opened to her. Because people were, were saying, we have to see what it is that Steve is jumping up and down about. So by all means, you know, we give you as much time as you need to tell us about this amazing new visual basic that, you know, has Gibson just breathless. <laughs> so, you know, in all fairness, you know, that was then. Um, uh, I, I... You know, I was tongue in cheek when I said that a monkey could program clearly Visual Basic. No I mean, ape yet has the it, actually. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it is. Although it is a, an infinite mon number of monkeys, as somebody in our chat room pointed out, typing on an infinite number of computers would actually be able to write a program that would quote Shakespeare. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. Anyway, Sam, I, I I apologize for the slight. I think it's great that you are programming at the age of sixteen, as I was. Um, That's the best I'm, time to start. It 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 is. Yeah. Um, it would. It's a very different era, as you say now, than it was then. Um, it was, you know, assembly language was what I got into then because that was that's what was happening. I mean, there wasn't. You know, I, we didn't have Visual Basic and the ability to drag controls out onto a form and stretch them to size and, and wire them up, or I doubtless would have been doing that. I mean, I I, I also think that Visual Basic has a place. Um, it it certainly, in, in terms of, you know, just getting the job done, I'm sure that Visual Basic is probably still the most used language on Windows of, of any, because, you know, in corporate environments where you're not trying to produce a finished product with all the polish and everything, but you're just trying to, you know, create some internal um, access for your, your, you know, SQL database back end. You want to, you know, people have all the requirements and they're needing this and that and the other thing. And it's like, hey, just use VB. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. You can certainly write really good 
Visual Basic code, which is, you know, has all the complexity and richness uh, of of code in any other language. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Coding is coding. Although I still think, I think it'd be great for kids to learn assembler uh, today. I don't think there's any harm in doing it. It's actually a very easy language to learn. It's much easier than learning VB. The For me, the advantage is the, that, first of all, I, I have run across many college um, references to things like the PDP-8 being the instruction set which is being taught. There are, there are people that wrote PDP-8 emulators for the use in educational curricula so that so that it's possible to, you know, to learn this simple instruction set and solve some problems. I, I'm, you know, I really believe there's something valuable about understanding what's going on underneath. And, you know, and those tools are available, although, you know, it, it requires that you delay gratification. And it's certainly the case that you're not going to produce a your typical contemporary state-of-the-art application, you know, quickly um, in assembly language because, you know, that's just, you know, because we're, you know, the, the, the old quote is, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, you know, I mean, there's so much that Visual Basic is standing on all the way down to the processor that, you know, most people want an application that looks like something that they're able to buy off the shelf. Visual Basic gives it to you almost without trying. Yeah, yeah. Um, there and there are a lot of great student languages like Python, where um, there's, um, you know, the, the, Visual Basic gives you, as you say, all that UI access, and that's nice. And but of I course, think people pa- should learn the concepts of programming before they get too excited about drawing windows on the screen. Maybe well, not. And of course, I don't know. Pascal was designed. It was a language designed language. Yeah. by Ni- by Nicholas Wirth for the purpose of teaching yeah. programming. Yeah. And I mean, it's still the one I wish had survived, uh, as opposed to C. It's just it's a little verbose with having to type begin and end all over the place. Right. I do like left and right curly braces a lot better, but um, still, you know, it's it, it produces beautiful code. I mean, you know, educationally beautiful code. Which you know has a place. Another plug for a Mac. It comes free with an op with a, a development system that allows you to do a lot of the. It has a rapid application development tool, just like VB, so you can draw windows and add it's code to it. Xcode package. Xcode. Right? It's amazing, and yep. you can code in Python, AppleScript, Ruby. All of these come with the the, the uh, Mac as well as Objective C. And you know we were talking about how str- how what a great uh, operating system the next was. And part of the reason it was so. Uh, uh, Portable was it was written in Objective C, which is a really interesting extension to C um, that just really does a nice job. So all of that comes with a Mac, which makes it a very good computer for people wanting to learn to program. There's yeah. a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Alice from uh, that Randy Pausch wrote at Carnegie Mellon, Alice.org. Great language for teaching kids. Anyway, we've come to the end of our twelve questions, Mister Gibson. Well, and not a moment too soon. <laughs> yeah, well, because I have to run. But you I thank <laughs> I thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure. Next week, do you know what we're going to talk about, or is it we're a gonna surprise? Finally, finally, give our listeners who've been chomping at the bit for the SSL protocol episode what they've been waiting for. Wow, that's going to take all the building blocks that we've talked about: hashing and and symmetric and asymmetric and signatures and all that stuff. We've got all the pieces we need now to look at, okay, what happens with, I mean, you know, this is, as we've said, the most, the number one most 
used security protocol there is because we all use it every time there's an S on the end of our HTTP. That's an SSL connection. How is it formed? How is it secure? And uh, how does it work? We're going to do that next week. Thank you, Steve Gibson. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Talk to you then, Leo. Security Now.